Wardcast episode 142, go! I'm Dylan Vento, and today I'm joined by Amanda Hudgens, uh, creator of the Thousand Button Project and managing editor at Unwinnable. Hi, Amanda. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Uh, what is the high today in Kentucky? <laughs> I have no idea, but it's too hot. It's actually colder today than it was two days ago because we had a heavy rain, but it is uh-huh. hot. Yeah. Yeah. It's 93 over here. Uh, it's probably in the eighties here. Uh, it's not quite nineties yet. That'll probably be this weekend I'm going to like an art fair. So it's always hotter when you know you're going to be outside all weekend. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the luck, isn't it? Yep. Uh, so, so what's going on? That's a big question. Yeah, let's start, let's start big and then we'll narrow it down. Uh, a lot of things. So, uh, we're, I'm, I just got another acceptance for the Thousand Button Project to go to another event, uh, which is nice. Uh, but I won't, I can't like announce that or anything because I haven't like finalized the details, but that'll be fun. Uh, and then Unwinnable is doing great. And, uh, I'm maybe starting my own podcast. So, Ooh, yeah. so this is just, this is practice, this is practice mode right here. Oh, we, we've already filmed three episodes, uh, recorded three episodes. I'm really big on like having a backlog first mm-hmm. yeah. so that when I get too busy, I can calm down. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been working on that, uh, getting guests on. And so I have a pretty, a pretty decent, uh, buffer now well into, I think end of June early july that's the best way to go you don't want to like have something and then be like oh no uh if i miss this week i'll miss like two weeks and that's why i did during gdc yeah. uh because i was like i don't have time to record anything so nothing's going up and then you just saw the subscriber number go a little yeah i went to a uh are you familiar with gdex at all uh, I know the name. I'm not familiar with the event. It's Ohio Game Developers, uh, like their organization. They run a event they have for the last couple of years. Um, we usually attend. And this past year, they have speakers and then like a con hall. And this past year, their main speaker were the McElroy brothers. Ooh. Yeah, I think, yeah, they had all three, which was kind of crazy. They caught them all. They caught them all. <laughs> and um, they did a conversation about like how to do a podcast and their big thing was like, if you have a schedule, keep to it because your audience pays attention and they'll know and they'll leave. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, I was there. I remember the beginning because I was a big uh, joystick podcast fan uh, with Chris Grant and yeah. Ludwig Keatsman and Justin McElroy. And then they were, Justin's like, we're doing this other thing. With my brothers. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's this other thing. Oh, it's kind of funny. Um, but not actually kind of funny. <laughs> that is also a thing now right yeah uh yeah i ran into greg at at pax east that was weird (laughs) um but yeah so and but that now that's their main shtick like you know just justin and griffin just left polygon like maybe a month ago it's been travis's main shtick for a while but yeah they're now the mcelroy brothers podcast network or whatever they call themselves right i think they're still part of maximum fun at least they were back in the day and then, and then they have all their like five different offshoots between the three of them. Rose Buddies or whatever it's called, and all those other shows. I don't. I'm not a huge like listener of all of their stuff. I really like mostly when people do animated 
versions of the podcast like on YouTube. I really I watch a lot of that, but I don't do a lot of the podcasting stuff, which was why it was fun to listen to them talk about a thing I just don't like engage with. My partner is a huge fan. He likes uh, he likes their main podcast and the Adventure Zone. Uh, he actually brought the Fantasy Costco song into his D and D campaign, which is really funny. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah. I, I. I think I've only ever listened to a little bit of My Brother, My Brother, Me, and then some of Sawbones, which Justin does with Sydney, his wife, uh, who who is a doctor, and it's really cool. Um. And they're also Southern game industry folks. All the Southern folks. Yeah, it's kind of fun because for a lot of people, the South doesn't exist in gaming at all. Or, or like, and like, it's also weird because in a lot of ways, Kentucky isn't the South. I had a, so I did train jam this year. And um, one of the guys in my car, I was like, no, you're part of the South. It was, all, it was like, you're only saying that because you don't want to be a part of the South. He goes, if I'm in the South, you're in the South. <laughs> but to be fair, I think he's actually in Georgia. So he is in the South. That that is that's some deep south southerness. That, that's not on me, bro. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't put you in the south. But yeah. Wait. So if if Kentucky isn't in the south, what where would it be? So that's actually the problem. Is it's not really anywhere. Like geographically, <laughs> it's really. I've had this conversation with like a bunch of mostly Canadians. It's ephemeral. They find the they find like the regional stuff really odd because every now and then they'll pop up and they'll go, "I'm writing about a thing. Where is Iowa?" And it's like, I don't know. Well, it's the chef. It's the chef's head. Yeah. I know where it is. I don't know, like, where it is, like, what geographical thing. I usually fold us into the Midwest, but that even isn't quite right. There's a good, there's a good, uh, uh, Vox article where they polled people about where, what you consider to be the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And then what is, like, I don't know, geopolitically, like, what geographers, academically consider the midwest and average citizens tend to skew more east like oh ohio is part of the midwest and they're like uh it's not no it's not which is what i've normally heard was like usually people usually throw ohio and indiana and illinois into the midwest and if they're throwing them into the midwest that's basically us anyway <laughs> we're there we're part of that party because i think a lot of people forget that tennessee exists and so when they think of like the South, they're like, well, you guys are like right above Georgia. It's like, there's an entire state, like right in between us. <laughs> you can't throw us. But like, I don't mind being in the South, like not necessarily ideologically, because I think there's a lot of like stuff about like deep conservatism that I don't necessarily agree with. But I think that I don't mind being part of the South, like culturally of the parts that aren't terrible. Um but I think that you end up with a lot of people who think they have this image of like specifically Kentucky. I was talking to my dad about it earlier because he's like, there's nothing wrong with Kentucky. I was like, you try throwing an event in Kentucky for game developers and you'll find out that you say the word Kentucky and everyone just hears deliverance banjos. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, or they think of Kentucky and they hear like, uh, I think, I can't remember which president it was. There was some president in like the 30s or 40s who's, who was like declaring a war on poverty. And he does it from a, the, the ricketiest like Eastern Kentucky porch you've ever seen in your life. Like all right, all right. it looks like it fell out of a catalog from like, don't settle here, you land, you know, landowners. And like that version of Kentucky was outdated even then. 
and the version of Kentucky that people have in their minds, even through games, like, like I have to, we're going to bring up one of my pet peeves because I'm going to do it. Uh, all right, I'm ready. All right. So, you know, Kentucky are at zero, right? Mm-hmm. I've not played it, but yeah, I know. Of it. So Jake Elliott is great. Um, I've met him a couple of times. He lives in Elizabethtown, but I think that you can really tell that he moved here in like act three because his version of Kentucky gets a lot closer to reality when he started living here. And before that, he was falling into a bunch of stereotypes that weren't true for the state when my mother was a kid. And, like, people have this, even, like, positively, people have this very outdated kind of pastoral representation of the state. Kentucky Rats here is magical realist, getting that off the table. But it's still founded in a reality that just isn't there. And I think that that has in its own way, its own kind of warped impact on how people view the region. Like, it's really hard to be like, oh, hey, uh, Lexington is like in the top 25 cities with the most doctorates per capita. And that's where I live. Um, And people don't get that because they hear Kentucky and they think deliverance banjos. But um, but like I live in a highly educated city. I live in a highly educated community. Um, We have a lot of people here like barefoot and pregnant again wasn't a thing when my mother was a kid so it's definitely not a thing now yeah i could yeah (laughs) well i i feel the same way sometimes about where i live in in virginia because it's kind of like you know what's what's the cultural identity at large for these southern states that aren't like the stereotypical southern states i mean I mean, realistically, that also means that the stereotypical southern states aren't that way either. Of course, yeah. Because, like, we're basing it off of, like, half-remembered things from, you know, that, like, the be- one of the best programs in the country for um, aerospace engineering is out of Alabama. Um, Huntsville, Alabama has, like, this huge per capita thing of rocket scientists, which you can think uh, Werner Von Braun after World War II moved to Huntsville, Alabama at, as part of like the state senator at the time for Alabama was like, no, nah, we got all these rocket scientists that are coming here. So like there's these huge like military contractors and people like Boeing and they have offices in all these major cities and Huntsville, Alabama. Wow. Cause they're graduating some of the top rocket scientists in the country. And that's hilarious to me because if you talk to somebody about rocket scientists, they're thinking like, I don't know, uh, Kennedy space center. Maybe they're not thinking Alabama. Right. And I mean, that's the problem. I mean, I forget what the original, I think it was something to do with tax breaks or something for large cities that drove a lot of, a lot of people to major cities like San Francisco or like Chicago or like New York. And then GI communities, things like that. Yeah. So the American identity writ large was kind of possessed by these extremely, extremely large metropolitan areas. Um, but you know, from the sounds of it, you sound like you enjoy living in, in Lexington and I really enjoy living in, in Richmond. And it's, it's weird because like where we are in this kind of industry, like there's the expectation that you have to kind of, why aren't you living in San Francisco or New York or Chicago? Um, frankly, I'm not because of just general cost of living. (laughs) Yeah. I pay the third of the rent here. (laughs) I paid, I think, I think I talked to a guy in San Francisco. And our rent and square footage was flipped. Oh, wow. (laughs) 
I live in 1,500 square feet for 800 a month. He lives in 800 square feet for 1,500 a month. And I was like, well, that's that's why I live here. Because I used to have this like gut reaction. Like I found at a lot of game events that I would go in and I would tell people that I was from Kentucky and people would apologize, which is gross. Yeah, that's something you really want to hear. And usually involved me like telling them to fuck off. Because like <laughs> you don't get to apologize for where I live, where I've lived most of my life. Like I've made an active choice to be here. Um, I've made an active choice to help build this community. I'm not here. I'm not a victim of poverty or circumstance mm-hmm. just because you don't understand where I live. Yeah. No, I, and I totally agree with that, especially with building communities because we have a very, you know, active, engaged, um, inclusive yeah. game dev group here and here in Richmond. And, you know, if, if all the successful people were to leave or the semi-successful people to look for opportunities elsewhere, then you're just contributing to the problem of, well, then there's not going to be any opportunities outside of the major cities because everyone that could help build that just keeps leaving. Yeah, I'm not saying I'll be here forever, but I don't see a foreseeable reason I would leave. And I mean, the community here is pretty great. It predates me joining it. Like, it's not like I started it or anything. We have an organization called... um, run jump dev like dev and mm-hmm. it's really great um it's been around for a while we've done two pax booths for example where we cool. take everyone up to pax as like a crew because it's expensive to go alone yeah and we have a studio here called frog dice it's been around since the 1990s like if you care about um you, their big founding thing was what's called muds uh, multi-user dungeons um they do sort of indie MMOs now, but they've got a really like robust community and you probably don't like oh and gun. Gun is probably our biggest one out of here. Um which I usually forget about for some reason. But uh, they made the Friday the thirteenth game. Oh okay. The new yeah. one. Okay. The one that just cool. came out and then like they made a uh like a Rainbow Six kind of kind of game called a Breaching Glare. Like we have all those studios and I think yeah, I think people don't realize, which is fine. Like, you're not behoven, like beholden to anyone to like recognize that you exist. But I feel like half of the battle of working with an organization like ours is telling people, no, no, we're here. <laughs> like, I promise we're here. There's a really good article in Polygon written by a writer I know named Blake Hester, where he traveled around the country and interviewed um, developers where they live. Uh, and so I talked to, you know, a guy who lives in Texas and, you know, a crew that lives in, and, um, Washington DC. And I remember he talked to, I think the guy might've been in Virginia or West Virginia. And he was like, there's no one around me who does what I do. And I just felt devastated. Cause I was like, dude, I know like four developers in your area. <laughs> 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 and uh, so he just, he just wasn't, you know, reaching out or trying or, or to find, he didn't know, like, and so that's like half of our job is just like every time we go to a show and somebody's like, I didn't know you were here. And it's like, on one hand, yeah, like if you Googled Lexington, Kentucky and game development, we're the first, second and third search results. But like on the other hand, like you feel like you've failed them because it's like, how, like what, what can I do so that you can find us so that you know we exist? Yeah. Like how can I, how can I? 
heighten our our awareness even even further. Yeah. Because because I mean we we run that same stuff here in Richmond, like trying to make people aware we're actually doing like a big reorg in that way because you know there have been people who have told us that it's like hey i wasn't able to find your stuff yeah because either maybe your website or your social media hasn't been updated or it wasn't crystal clear about what you guys do or what you know opportunities you can offer yeah that's been my gig like in our organization for a couple of years now is i mostly am the person making sure our website and all our stuff is up to date like fingers crossed if you go and look at most of that stuff it's correct and we use mostly Meetup, like we have a WordPress site, and we have like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and that covers ninety percent of people. But there's always that one person who, like, I don't know, maybe checked the phone book. I, <laughs> I don't know where they, or maybe they just assumed, which I think is more likely. They were like, I don't see any like Bethesda signs you know, on any of the buildings in town. Like, so there probably isn't a game development scene here. And it's like, well, we're not AAA yet. Maybe yet. S- yet. Maybe someday a, a AAA studio will move here, but I don't see that happening for a long while. And But then, I mean, then it's the thing of you're just going to always be associated with that with that. The company. way that, um, is it Raleigh, North Carolina? That's basically epic. Yeah. I mean, it's not because it's also been a couple other things, but like that's what people think of, like, like oh, Raleigh, epic. Well, it's not even just Raleigh, and I would argue it's not even North Carolina. I would say, like, even from my vantage point, if I say Virginia, it's either going to be "Hey Bethesda" <laughs> or "Hey Epic." Like yeah. that's because they triangulate the next closest huge developer that they know of. They're like, oh, I mean, Kentucky, we don't have anybody. Like most people, are like, oh, I didn't make the. If we have anybody, it's Kentucky Red Zero, which again. Up until Act 3, none of the developers even lived here. Uh, mm-hmm. Not even 100%. I think that they came on vacations here, like when they were little kids. Like, I'm we not should make kidding. a game off this place. Yeah, like I think one of them were visiting like Mammoth Cave and they were like, oh, this is cool. We should we should write about this. I used to go to this really cool place when I was a kid. And it's like, cool. Again, I, li- I like Jake. He's nice. He lives here now. He's great. And like I'm sure he was great when he lived in Chicago. He's better now that he's here. Yeah, I wonder how the uh, the the devs that made Virginia was it variable state, veritable state. Oh yeah, I forget that. Um, I want to say they're European, maybe. Probably, I don't think the game had anything to do with the state. It was like Twin Peaksy kind of. Right. Well, I mean, it it it, w- it took place in the state, and that is associated with. I think they were they were federal agents, so it's like about them. You know, we have Quantico, and we have you know we have all the big federal government stuff here and northern yeah. virginia is just a giant neighborhood for dc basically so yeah my sister used to live up there southern devs yeah they're <laughs> growing and they're getting more like visible they exist like i usually like to sell us to g i haven't gotten successfully gdc does this like pass thing where you can like get passes for your organization to hand out and i you and i and i contact them every year with the idea of like economic and like geographic diversity for the region because like you don't see a lot of Appalachian or Kentucky developers at GDC and there are a bunch of us and like be cool if we were there but we haven't gotten it yet so who knows everybody just wants to blame us for Trump (laughs) 
If there's one, I mean, yeah, my my state's been, you know, red in the past is purple now, and we almost swung our state legislature to blue majority, but. I live in a I live in a firmly Republican state with um, two hot spots of blue, one of which I live in. So it is, yeah, I get it. Um, but I think that I don't know. I've always thought that blaming the South for everything is a convenient way to get, like, not have to own own up for your own shit. Like, oh, you guys did this. Well, yeah. That's not entirely on, like, we had to reckon with that. You didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Richmond being the former capital of Confederacy, there's a lot yeah. of, there's, there's a lot of that that exists. Um, I think I was talking to Scott Benson at GDC. Oh, cool. Because uh, he's really big in the, very active in the DSA and the Richmond uh, chapter of the DSA. I don't know if they, they, they did this, but they at least took a photo of it um someone uh projected like a light art onto one of the uh confederate general statues i think it was robert e lee um and said like stop white supremacy or something and then they said the medium was um light on garbage i mean yeah i mean for us we did um like our confederate statues were like as they should have been like they were taken down in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. yeah like our uh, our uh our, we announced it and then a bunch of places were like we're going to march on Lexington and we're going to come take them down and they were down within a week like without any fanfare they were just gone it was like nope out of here yeah we're still grappling with that uh, we have a we have a black mayor um, who is newly elected and he was very much like what my stance on it doesn't matter I need to know what the citizen stance is on it and yeah because it's probably more complicated even there like we yeah. have almost like for Lexington, it was just weird to have it because we have like almost no like historical connection to it. Mm -hmm. Like I think a former vice president of the Confederacy is from Lexington. Like that's the closest, and it's like cool. That's nothing. <laughs> like you can't even like argue like historical relevance. It's like. Nah, you guys basically invented a reason to stick a statue in the middle of our town. Right. Yeah, we 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 still have to grapple with that stuff. There's a lot of uh, I, I guess sons of the Confederacy that like marched around on Sundays in front of like the history museum, waving their flags. Yeah, which is no good. I mean, that's the part of it. That's the part of the South that I'm like not a fan of. Like all of that, like legacy heritage crap. That is just that. Like, it's the part that's not great. And it's the part that, like, makes me not, like, fully recommend, like, moving to the area. Like, I've lived here most of my life. Like, I, and that's the other thing to sort of point out is that a lot of people are like, oh, well, you live there. Like, you don't get it. It's like, well, yeah, but I also used to live in major cities. Like, I grew up in Denver. Um, I moved here when I was a teenager. And we didn't leave. But I've lived here now most of my life. Like, I'm from St. Louis. Like, I'm not necessarily from here. My family's from here, which is why we moved back. But people here that you live here and that you're fine living here, and they think, oh, well, you have no choice. I have a choice. <laughs> I've, I've chosen to live here, but I don't know that I necessarily recommend it. And it's for things like that. Yeah. and But it's also weird how 
people tend to kind of turn a blind eye to it if there's a uh, economic opportunity involved. Yes. So like, you know, Raleigh kind of gets a pass. Mm-hmm. Austin gets a pass. Yeah. For being, you know, part of the South, but they're huge major tech hubs. I mean, it's that thing with like, when Children of Men came out, this is like a weird non sequitur, but when like Children of Men came out and a bunch of people didn't want to call it uh, science fiction, because that would make them have to admit that they liked something that was genre fiction. And so they were calling it like, I think the term I heard a bunch was, no, it's speculative fiction. And it's like, it's sci-fi, just call it sci-fi. You happen to like it. That doesn't mean that it's not this thing you've stated as not liking. Yeah. Well, outside of living in the South, Amanda, <laughs> uh, why don't you tell me about some of your game dev projects? Um, I used to, yeah, I used to joke that I only made narrative games about oppression, which is what makes the fact that what I'm doing now, like the best known thing I'm known for right now is I make uh, large scale button installations as part of an ongoing art project called the um, Thousand Button Project. That's probably the thing I'm best known for on the internet. Hashtag Thousand Button Project. (laughs) uh it's yeah it's a large currently i have uh two boards completed i took one to gdc which is a smaller one and then uh a larger one which i've taken to uh magfest anime central a couple of other like local conventions that are smaller and uh it's mostly just this idea of creating an arcade tabletop that you play by hitting everything all at once uh, a bunch of people have called it like the ultimate button masher. And the idea is that every control does a different thing and they randomize at the start of every round. And so there's like visual effects, audio effects, and like character effects. Yeah, I first heard about it. Uh, one of my friends played it at MAGFest. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't get a chance to touch it, but I heard about it. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then I think you casually mentioned it on the Train Jam Discord. I was like, I heard about that game. And you're like, yeah, I made it. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. No, I had this. I had this funny experience. Like, it's it's gotten around in this weird way. Like, I like I'll bring it up at like things, and people would be like, oh, I heard about that. And it's like, yeah, I I made that. And they're like, you did. And it's like, well, yeah, because it's like really weird to me because it's not really like a. It's not an easy thing for people to like. I have a hard time explaining it. So it's weird to me that anybody's like talking about it that didn't like actively play it because it's like, how do you explain that? It's like, I'm having trouble with that. And it's also a thing of like showing it off at events. And I had a guy at GDC who was like, oh, it was at IndieCade. And I was like, it wasn't. And he was like, oh, IndieCade East. And then he walked (laughs) off and it was like, it it wasn't there either. Like, (laughs) I should know. Like, I have to cart the thing across the country whenever I take it places. Like, it doesn't go anywhere easily. Your controller is reaching mythical proportions. It's just... If if Indicade wants it, they can have it. (laughs) But I haven't gone. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I feel like that's, that's kind of like greater game dev, not criticism, but just like talking talking about games and stuff like you know i only play a fraction of the games that that come out and you know but i still am pretty aware of a vast majority of them so i'm able to to speak on it whether it's from stuff i've read or stuff i've heard about and 
I'm sure it's weird for any individual dev to be like, oh, my my game has entered that 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 realm. Like it's weird because it's not yeah, it's not really like I don't know. Like it's 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 like a really small experience and it's kind of it's very situational. Like I think one of the biggest problems I have with like entering it into because I've had a lot of rejections for it. And I think one of the big reasons is that it doesn't it's very hard to communicate what about it's interesting. Like I got feedback from one of the last places that said no. And they said, uh, it's not clear um, what, how you teach someone the controls. And it's like, what? <laughs> uh, you hit every, that's the controls. <laughs> like, <laughs> the controls are you hit everything. Like that's not. And, and like, I get it. It's, it's kind of hard to like, be like people see it. And like, especially like fighting game people. And they're always like, oh, so is there like, I can figure this out. And it's like, no. no. They're like, but what if there's like this button? Can you tell me what this button? No, I can't tell you what that button does. It does a different thing every time. And I think that level of randomness is weird for games, maybe. Because it wasn't originally designed as a game. It's originally de- conceived and designed as an art installation. Okay. For a local, like, uh, um like children kind of children's museum called the living arts and science center. It's like a, um, art and science, like learning thing for mostly teenagers and like kids. So it's a really great organization. They've worked with us for the last couple of years and I designed the piece for them originally. And then it got picked up by Bitbash because I know Bryce from Bitbash and he, he follows me on Twitter and I was just like, Hey, how do I submit a game? And he's like, is it the board? I want it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you can have it. Give it to me. <laughs> yeah, give me the board. And I was like, sure. I mean, I'd be interested. And like when I took it there, it got a lot of play by mostly like fighting game people who, as far as I can tell from talking to them at Bitbash and Magfest, think of it like some really hilarious in joke that it is not. <laughs> like. Like, a bunch of them will be like, you know, like, dive kick. And it's like, well, I've played dive kick. I thought it was derivative and not very funny. And so, like, somebody playing it is just like, oh, man, I love it. And it's like, cool. I'm glad you like it. But, like, this isn't an in-joke. I don't play fighting games. Like, this is kind of a reaction to not playing fighting games. The I kind of had that a little bit, not in terms of games I've made, but we were discussing something on our community discord i think it was like you know i'm i'm not a big fan of kojima's work right like i'm not a big fan of metal gear solid um just because i think as much as an auteur he can be i just find the 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 storytelling kind of bland and bad and i don't like that there's a huge thing about a guy shitting his pants um the i have but i have friends that that love that series and they'll make connections from other series to it or i have a friend who uh Will, he's one of my co-hosts, he he makes a lot of comparisons to Dark Souls because he's a big Dark Souls fan. And it kind of keyed me into the point that's like, you know, whatever your, wherever your your basis lies in whatever things you consume or whatever you're, you uh, call yourself a fan of, that's kind of how you perceive the rest of the world, which obviously it saying that out loud, that seems very obvious. But it's this weird thing about, you know, having critical discussions about certain things and talking about you know authorial intent and 
what the audience interprets themselves. It's 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 an interesting thing. That's basically the fundamental like idea behind a lot of like media criticism is that you relay the things you're most interested in. You see the world through a lens of like your past experiences and the things that you identify with are a really good indicator of that. So like um, people who write about games who only talk about movies, it's kind of that like relational thing. And you think it was a big part of when I used to work at Kill Screen and when I applied for the job there, the first thing that they asked me was, um, what do you care about aside from games? Which is like a funny way of like asking it, but it's also like, it's a good way of like establishing, okay, you're going to be the kind of person that talks about like philosophy and Heidegger and in like relation to games, because that's how you see the world like is through this. I answered that question very poorly. I did not get the job the first time I got it. Um, I think I said food trucks, which was <laughs> <laughs> which was a not true, uh, and shows that I'm a very solid interview subject. That's and great. It's not like any of the 14 things I do that aren't games. But sure, it's what I said. <laughs> all right, all right, man. I got to think. Got to think of food trucks. And he like stopped. Because it was Clayton Purdom. He like we were on her video chat. And he full on stops and he looks at me and he goes, "Food trucks." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, we've got a really big burgeoning scene happening here." And it was like, "Why the fuck did I say that? Like, what was I? What the fuck? It's not a good answer to any question, basically, except what do you want to eat for lunch?" Well, I don't want to eat a food truck. You want to eat the not a whole food truck. Of food truck. <laughs> also, and at that point, I was also like briefly considering running a food truck that sold jello shots all right all right they make weird specialty jello shots i like that i like that you go to go downtown go to downtown lexington open it up at night yeah that was the idea the funny thing is, is that i don't drink at all mm-hmm. uh, but i make jello shots for other people and they're apparently pretty good i don't i've never had one because <laughs> i don't like them but they rave about them they do i make a mango jalapeno one Ooh. That's really popular. So I have fun with it, but that's basically like, I think that that's an important part of like criticism is like the way you view the world and like what you're interested in as like, here are the things that I'm passionate about. Here's the way that I, here's the lens through which I perceive things. And for fighting game people, it means that they look at my board and say, oh, look, a hilarious joke about the medium I love. And like occasionally I'll run into people who are like, oh, this is an art installation. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> please you got it please tell me your background because i know that it's not <laughs> what everyone else is getting do you have do you have just a bachelor's in art history or do you have your master's <laughs> which which level of education do you have where you just looked at this and like mm, a finely curated art exhibit because it doesn't look like one either it doesn't look like anything <laughs> like just a bunch of holes routed in a piece of plywood i hand drilled that first one like with i have a drill and i like every single hole it has a hundred holes in it uh the guy one of the guys who like works at a local makerspace saw it and he was like I, you can just see and see that and i was like i don't have a cnc he goes i do and i went over to his i went over to the makerspace and the second board he did in an hour the first board wow. took me two weeks the wow. second one took an hour man it was like oh this is why technology is important <laughs> <laughs> this is why we invented tools this is why we're not all Luddites. I get it. Oh, man. This has opened a whole new world to me. So shout out to Tom and the Korean Now Makerspace for saving my life. 
Thanks, Tom. <laughs> but yeah, like I think that um, the, the big thing I'm working on is that basically is that big project. And then um, also in terms of game dev, I work for a small local studio called Super Soul. And we work mostly in um, educational games and client work, but we're also working on an endless competitive, like couch competitive uh, runner uh, called Kentucky Dash. And I guess you could theoretically say I'm the art lead on that. Uh, It gets complicated in indie development to say that you're anything, really. Yeah, that you only have one hat. It's like I also did all of the marketing for it and like... Um, I did a lot of the design, um, but I think the thing that most firmly wouldn't exist without me is the art. So I've started calling myself the art lead because it makes the most sense. So that's like the pig like game stuff I'm working on. And then occasionally still narrative games about oppression. Oh, and TED Talk Simulator. Ooh, I think I heard you talk about that on twitter i think i saw that um, probably so a while ago cool games inc a podcast i never listened to um featuring a uh recently fired dick uh <laughs> that i also won't name uh went and did uh they were talking about an idea called ted talk simulator um i don't necessarily recommend listening to the podcast i haven't heard it but there's a very good um uh a- like animated thing on youtube about it that's that's like an animated version of what's going on. Um, the game as described didn't really work. It was too random. The idea was is that you get random cues, you get a random topic, and you're given like 30 seconds to a minute to like look at this topic. And then you're given like random slides, music cues, and um, like timings, basically. That's, that's fine. It's You can see in the... You can see in the video, if you watch the video or the podcast, if you listen to the podcast, you can see that it doesn't really work because it's too fast. And it's like upsetting because suddenly like the lights go up and uh, now there's a picture of a shark and like the stuff, it's like too random. So we um, I had a couple of friends over and we sort of like fixed it. And so I bottled it up and there is a PDF you can download on my itch page. That's a PDF of the ted talk simulator i'm gonna probably fix it up a little bit more um for an upcoming uh, jam local game jam and then release it because it's kind of stupid and fun and it's a good like party game i've had a couple people try it out the weirdest one was actually i showed it at we run a local game dev conference here and uh chris charla the guy from id at xbox uh he was at he was speaking and he i told him the premise of it and he was like oh, that sounds like something I have to do. And I was like, I was really worried because it's like, don't set up your expectations really high. And then he did it and he knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I don't think anybody like actually captured video of it, but he gave a pitch perfect presentation. He didn't fluster. He didn't fumble. He just like, he started at the beginning and like, we're throwing curveballs. Like a sign will pop up. He's like talking about some famous geologist or something. And he, there's no way he's memorized the information. He's had a minute. Right. And he's yeah. just, he's standing up there and all of a sudden the screen will say something like 99% and he just incorporates it and then moves on. <laughs> and you're just like, how? Because most he's people, ahead of idea of Xbox. Yeah, this is, this is why. This is why that dude's in charge. It's because he can get one hell of a presentation off of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> which game out, which game out? All right, got it. All right. Let's do this. Let's give this pitch. Let's give this pitch. <laughs> I got this. 
So yeah, I guess the answer is is that I'm working on everything. That's a good. That's a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I I trying to think of a trying to look of a way. I did look at the TED Talk simulator. I remember it now. I I did go to that itch page. Uh, I was just vaguely so it is so it's like so it's physical obviously. Um, mostly. So it, re- it requires like a presentation screen of any kind, like a big TV or uh, the one we use in my house is we have like a Chromecast and a TV and then like a laptop where someone like controls the thing and then it has like a PDF with rules in it. But it's probably closer to like a tabletop game than it is to like, uh, like a Unity project. My day job boss is like, we should make it a Unity game. And I was like, that sounds complicated. <laughs> But so basically, you give the speaker a subject matter, and they have to talk on it, and then, yes. like you said, you throw them curveballs. Mm-hmm. That's cool. It's very fun. Um, I always like kind of physical projects like that. Um, I, I don't, I don't make a lot myself, but uh, we we did one global one year where I forget what uh, I forget which theme it was, but this guy showed up. Oh, it, it was ritual. It was the one that was ritual. Okay, so it was so like, like two years ago, two or three. Yeah. Um, and this guy showed up and he custom CNC'd a, uh, a, a custom Ouija board called uh, emo, emo Ouija or something. So it was just instead of letters, it was just every emoji on this Ouija board. And it was looked pretty good. Then you got to do it. There's an emoji board. Yeah. Uh, guy, guy, I'm, I'm poop emoji just perpetually. I also kind of wanted to ask, since we were talking about um, you working at Unwinnable, I was kind of curious about how you kind of balance those two things. Oh, sort of the, like, bias, like, the big, like, bias ethics in game journalism question? <laughs> uh, I guess I meant more so, like, you know, how do, how do you have time for doing all this stuff? Cause... Oh, I don't. <laughs> okay. Like, last night, like, I had to tell one of my writers, very sweet guy, this isn't an indication on him at all, he was like, oh, hey, like, you, have, I haven't heard back from you, and I was like, I haven't been home yet, because, like, I left, I left to go to work at, like, nine, and, like, because my day job, so I left work, I worked here all day, I then filmed, recorded a podcast, then got suckered into going to a bar, I didn't get home until, like, 3 a.m., so I did four edits at 3 a.m. So I did because um, I was behind. I hadn't done Thursday yet. So every article that went out Thursday and Friday at Unwinnable this week, I did in an hour <laughs> before I crashed, which probably isn't the best way to do it. Like, I'm not recommending this to anyone. I just really like working there. Yeah. Because uh, I've, I've never, like, the way I've always explained it to people is that um, one of the first. One of the first times I knew I was staying at Unwinnable for any reasonable amount of time was I had a deadline with Stu, who's the primary editor. And I was like running behind and I was like super upset. Like I had a bunch of stuff at my day job and I was, I didn't know how to tell him because I'd had like other editors where I'm like, I'm behind and they're like, well, you've got to do it. And I contacted him and I was like, I'm sorry, I was going to write you an article and instead I wrote you a 2000 word like panic attack. And it is like, I still have a copy of it. It's the closest I have to like having a panic attack written out on paper. It's like 2000 words of me just going, I hate everything. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm and miserable. And he goes, well, I'd like to read that. And he's like, and also <laughs> you can have two days, like you can have two extra days. And it was like, he was, so, he was so chill about it. He was so calm about it. And he was just so like, no, it's fine. And he's like, we can publish this if you want. I was like, no, I do not think we should publish my panic attack. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) For the world to see. No, because he's been really supportive. Like the last two big articles I've had wouldn't have happened without Stu like saying we should do this. Because like I don't, um, it's just really easy for me to like go back and just not do anything. Like, because I enjoy editing. I used to do a lot of creative writing workshops in my first undergrad degree. And so I was like, oh, this is really fun for me. I like going through pieces and helping nurturing writers to grow. Like for me, an editorial writer relationship is really about give and take and about um, the relationships you have with your writers and maintaining a positive one, even if they've turned you in something that you're like, whew, oh, buddy. Let's let's take five minutes. Let's go back. Let's get to work. Let's even even when it's that like, if you treat someone like they're an idiot or like they're never going to get better, then they won't. And that's the core of like how I edit is that it's a meant like my best creative writing teacher was a guy named Gary Norman. He's a like a 1970s beat writer, and he was my last uh, creative writing teacher in college. And his big thing was uh, positivity. Like, you would give him a piece and it would be terrible. And you knew it was terrible. And he would look at it and he would go, I really like what you've done here. And, like, he would then, like, he would explain to you what you had done wrong. Like, what parts. Like, I really think that your voice will come through more if you do this. But he was so chill about it that, like, you felt yourself getting better just to, like, make him happy. But not in a way that was, like, antagonistic. Because I think there's a lot of writing and editing relationships that are antagonistic. Like, you go on Twitter and you see some editor posting, like, a dunk on one of their writers for, like, using some formal thing that they don't like. Like, can you believe that there's writers who still use the Oxford comma or, you know, something stupid like <laughs> I knew that. you were going to use that example. That was the first example that jumped in my head. But, like, that's stupid. If you get what they're saying, it doesn't matter. Like... I have a very lackadaisical approach to that. Like, I don't, like, people are always like, do you want video games or video space games? And I was like, just be consistent. Like, formalism, I guess, is nice, but we're not running a site that's formal. Like, we're not running a thing that's going to be like, oh, man, you've got to make sure everyone uses the same type of, like, format. Why? (laughs) That you, You got it. You understand, like, what they're saying isn't worse off because they're using the wrong, the wrong, quote-unquote, form of, like, a, like we have a really great writer named Kihun who's out of Asia. Uh, they use, um, like, British spellings, which is really common. Like, it doesn't matter. Why would that matter? Like, you get it. I get it. It doesn't matter how they spell the word color. And so, like, that whole thing. But, yeah, I... I like working with Stu because the first time I talked to him and said, um, hey, do you want an editor? Like, do you guys have an editorial direction? And he was like, what's that? <laughs> I was like, can I be the editorial direction? And he was like, sure. I was like, I think I want to be angry and kind of punk. And he goes, perfect. I was like, yes. That's good. And so that's what we've been doing. Yeah, and I mean the the site itself like definitely has has that sort of vibe, and like you do uh, monthly issues or they're kind of a magazine as well. Yeah, so the basic rundown for Unwinnable is we have a uh, daily um, we have daily sort of website updates, um, usually Monday Monday through Friday. Um, that's mostly me. 
Um, the anything you see coming through the website is something I've approved. Uh, then you have our monthly uh, issue, which is the Unwinnable Monthly, and these the next two things are subscription based. So you have to buy in. Because we have a subscriber model, so that we can actually pay our writers and we don't have to do shitty advertising. Um, and so there's uh, the Unwinnable sort of monthly thing, which is mostly Stu's purview. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, regular columns, things like that, pretty standard sort of web magazine that you download on a PDF. And then we have a new edition, which I could have wrong, but I think that's Mel King running that. Um, and she's, uh, it's called Exploits, and it's all micro blurbs and reviews. So cool. And that's like a smaller sort of offshoot publication. So if a normal comes out on the 15th, Exploits comes out on the 30th. And if you're a subscriber, you get both. How big is the editorial staff? Uh, not super big. We've probably got, I think it's like five of us really that do everything. <laughs> However important I feel we are. We've got a fairly small um, sort of lean operating base. We have a couple of people who do sort of layout stuff for the um, magazine. Uh, Mel runs our social media as well, for example. And then I do editorial stuff and like clear through pitches with Stu. So it's all pretty small. And it's still mostly at this point volunteer because we're, we're that kind of publication still. Like we're growing. Like if we can get our subscriber base up, we can get more stuff. If we can get more sponsors, we can get more. We can like pay better. Because the eternal problem with, and something I'm very open with with new writers when they sign up for us, like I'll talk to them, they'll be like, uh, you know, what's it like working for you? And I'll be like, it's great. Also, we don't pay great because we don't. But I like to do that because uh, Kill Screen did it. <laughs> like when I first started working for them, uh, I they, they said, you know, we paid $20 an article. And I was like, sure, it sounds great. That's terrible. Like, Full disclosure, that's that's absolutely brutally awful. Like most web publications I've worked with outside of that are like 150 to 500. So like to give you a context for how little that is. And uh, sorry, I'm brutally honest about pay because I think that it's the only way to that's get important. It's the only way to talk about it. It's the only way to say like, okay, this sucks as an industry, this sucks. Because I think that's part of what started the whole that's one of the things that started this whole problem with the web and the internet and this like retaliatory actions against writers in general was this idea that for some reason people thought we were getting paid really well <laughs> and like, Oh no, honey, not at all. Like, and like kill screen, when I got $20 an article, I thought that was really good because the last place I'd worked paid me five. And so I was like, Oh, 20, that's, Jesus, that's the best pay I've ever had. I'm rolling in it. Yeah, oh man, 20 bucks. And no, that's terrible. And so I like to be clear and upfront and talk to people and be like, okay, no, our pay isn't great, but we're working on it. Like, we're not going to tell you our pay is great. And then you find out later that we shafted you. Our pay isn't great, but we're really supportive and we actively are trying to make that better. And you're not trotting out the, ooh, we're paying you an exposure line. Oh, God, no. That's the worst. Yeah. I mean, I I never knew much about about kill screens kind of, you know, um, (laughs) 
policies or anything like you know it i feel like the tone has has changed very rapidly on them and i think i saw some someone just remark like they're not even really a, a publication anymore or whatever oh they they aren't um if you look on their wikipedia page there's actually a really good line there about how they're they're a uh, aggregator is the technical term for that and what that mostly means is that they exist as a link off for other sites. Like if you go to the Kill Screen website, which I think isn't even optimized for not mobile, which is weird. Like it, it only it's a mobile site only. If you go there, it's like a hamburger menu in yeah, the on the browser yeah. or on the desktop. It's bad. And so if you go and look at that now, it's like links to it's everything's a link to like the Amazon search for Kill Screen, I think is one of them. And like MIT like MIT Press and like I think the last time I checked it was a interview from 2014. Kill screens just Reddit now. Uh, it no, it's worse because it, <laughs> it doesn't change. Like right. Reddit at least like updates, but like it's all basically uh, dead. I think that they're technically an ad agency now. I wouldn't know because I don't. I, I'm not one of their clients, but I do know that they're not a they're not a web publication anymore. Yeah, whenever whenever any of our um any of our colleagues locally like get showcased with a game jam game or something that they made, like D- Daniel Riendo uh wrote an article about one of Will's games from awesome. Illumdari a couple a couple game jams back and he was really excited. Yeah, she's Waypoint. Yeah. And Will's also a huge fan of Danielle, so that was really exciting for him. Um and we did zero hour game jam once and my colleague Sam made like a game where it's like you're looking through a, a microscope and it's just kind of you're just it's you know very passive zen game where you're just watching kind of like microbes and stuff kind of shift around and i think i think kill screen wrote something about it and we we're like oh it's like you know publication wrote something and then now i'm like maybe not bring up that kill screen wrote something i don't know no i mean they they were i mean and the thing is is that like so i worked with them right up until basically they fired all of their staff which i can say because i'm not under nda um <laughs> So they like they like fired everyone, and I wasn't staff. I was um, regular freelancer. I wrote um, three to five articles a week for them, um, and they, yeah, they they basically like I got an email one morning saying uh, you have to have all your articles, outstanding articles, in by tomorrow if you want to get paid for them. And then I was like, okay, and I didn't realize that they'd let everyone go. So there was like this brief moment of like, oh god, I just what did I do? Because like they didn't they didn't tell me that everyone was gone, but that's what they did. They basically fired everyone, in like kind of one fell swoop, and um, I guess let go. Because it's not like any of us did anything wrong. So firing is probably the wrong word. Um, but like I still think fondly back to like I would occasionally like run across like articles I'd written about like other people's games. Like I would go and download these games later to like play again, and I would like see in the comments like they would have like suggested articles and they'd have like a link and it would say kill screen and it would have my name like so-and-so from kill screen that feels good because it does like i like being supportive of people and like i guess to cover the general bias question because it's, it's relevant um i don't write games about people i know i don't write sorry i don't write articles about people i know to clarify um i'm very far away from that like on the on the big part, I mostly work in games that are personally are either art installations or like very small educational projects that like we're not getting covered by Polygon or something. <laughs> so the Thousand Button Project was in Polygon as part of the Bitbash coverage, which was really nice. 
but like I'm not covering I'm not covering like games like mine and I'm not really covering games really at all at this point like in the last year I've basically transitioned out I'm covering if anything film uh because games got mean man <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah. the games writing got mean and it got harder to um avoid that conflict like i think like for example even like i did an article for kill screen at one point about the sausage sports club game uh chris wade who's out of chicago and then like after i posted that article i met chris wade in chicago he's great hang out with him on train jam and that's like is that complicated by the fact that i wrote this article about him beforehand i don't think so like i think being in the industry gives me a clarity towards other things that other games writers maybe don't have the awareness of like i can ask questions about engines that other people can't i can ask questions about like production timeline without being like oh this is taking a while it's like i know that games take a while like I've worked on them for years. So it's I think I can it, gaming is the only industry I know of in creative endeavors where having a foundational knowledge of the task is treated as a negative. Like I feel like if I worked in movies and wrote about them, there wouldn't be this much of a backlash to it. But the fact that I write about games and have made them is some sort of like great evil to the kind of dicks who think that women shouldn't be on the internet yeah i i and maybe this is just being naive but i i see really no issue like i mean obviously you could we could talk about conflict of interest like if like if you're colleagues with this person and you cover their game it's like sure that's that's just basic journalistic it's like why i don't it's why i don't cover games that are for people i know right but the industry is big enough that there are people i don't know and i frankly don't know anybody who works in AAA. So if I write a review of Far Cry 5, which I didn't do because I didn't play it, but if I did, if I wrote a review about Far Cry 5, I don't know anybody who worked on, who works in, at Ubisoft. Like, not really. I think, yeah, I don't know anybody who works at Ubisoft. So, like, I'm not going to be like, oh, my friend works at this game. Like, I'm not going to, like, I can write about, uh, what, Fallout. Like, I don't know Todd Howard. We're not bros. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> not getting beers with Todd Howard on the weekends. I'm not getting be- beers with Todd Howard on the weekend so that I can write a positive review of his game. Like that's not how that works at all. Like that's another like I guess perk to to living where I do. That like I don't know any <laughs> of these people and like I wouldn't want any of the writers I know to write about my games. Like I've I've actively talked to people I've talked to people out of it before. Like I've had writers be like, "Oh, do you want? Can I write about like the Thousand Button Project?" I was like, "I think that that's like a clear violation of like bias." Like, <laughs> no. And like we've had articles that have come through unwinnable about people I know. Like I know uh, the musician Tumelo really well. Uh, he lives about two minutes away from me. I can probably walk to his house. Uh, he's also done the music for Brom and Cerebral, and he, he's even done the music for a couple of the games I've worked on. Super nice guy. I've never written a piece about him. I probably will never write a piece about him. We had a piece from uh, Brock Wilbur, because he's doing a series of developer interviews for Unwinnable. 
he came in and he did an article on Tumelo that he did all on his own. Didn't tell him to do it at all. And I didn't touch it. I actually, to be totally fair, have not read it. Sorry, Brock. <laughs> so like, I don't like, I think that those bias lines are really clear and easy to avoid. And so I do. And for the longest time, it's, I literally kept them separate. Like, especially during, especially during GD, I, I kept them entirely separate. Like, I didn't, like, I have separate emails for everything, so it's not going to the same place. I don't share emails across that boundary. Like, if you know me, I have separate business cards. <laughs> like, I don't talk about one usually when I talk about the other. This is the first interview I've ever done where I talk about both, I think. There might be one exception. Like, I think I let an intern interview me for one of my first publications about the fact that I made Ludum Dare games. Because he was like, I want to interview someone. I'm like, Fine, you can interview me. But I think that's probably it. Like, I, it's, I don't think it's highly relevant anymore. And um, in the past, it's something that kind of, like, paints a target on you because people hear about it and they say oh wow you're it's like i have i have a deep freeze page which is always fun (laughs) i had a guy contact me from there and go uh you would better like fully disclose that you you know you know zoe quinn or else like it was very weird and you can even look at it i think it's actually still archived on the deep freeze page which is the weirdest part is he actually like archived him like threatening me over this what yeah like it's really it's wow. really weird like it's the it's a really casual threat but it has a very like or else feel to it because i even showed it to people it's like am i misreading this and it's like no that's a that's a threat and wow. the thing he was threatening me over was uh like two things one did you know that zoe quinn is in jazz punk no i didn't i didn't either she's not on any of the pages for it so i don't know how i would know that like it, like her likeness, or she voiced a character, or is- I think she voiced. I think she's a voice actor for it. I think that's the thing. I don't even know because I didn't even know she was in the game. Because I didn't, I didn't play the game. I did. A, she did the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> I did a news article about like the new like jazz punk like remastered or something. So that's that's it. It wasn't a review. Uh, I didn't know she was in the game, and he found out that a very long time ago I had a Patreon because I don't pay my patreon anymore because i forgot like my credit card expired and i forgot to update it and so he found that i i backed zoe quinn on patreon and i was like oh that my credit card like expired i forgot to update it i haven't paid that in years and he was like prove it and i was like <laughs> what so i sent him like a screenshot of my actually because i wanted to see what this looked like like what his actual process was so i screenshotted the uh, email i get from patreon every month saying that I don't, that like my, my card was declined because it's, it's an old card. And so I sent him that screenshot and he's like, no, I need to see like bank statements. I was like, dude, I'm not sending a random person on the internet a bank statement to yeah. prove that I didn't pay Zoe Quinn to write a news article about her. To, so you could fill out your stupid alt-right database website. And so like, if you look it up, I think it says like, not confirmed or something like but it has it has my name and then it has like a link to him like threatening me and me explaining that he doesn't he's not making any sense like it's just a link to him being a dick and me just being way too reasonable with a random person on the internet who doesn't need my financial information i think i stumbled upon that website once a long time ago and i was like what the what 
is this? Like, what is this like little like weird info box about Brad Shoemaker that I'm looking at right now? It doesn't tell you anything. Like most of those GD stuff, they like miss the big stuff. Like there's that award ceremony thing, the Knuckle Award or something. You know what I'm talking about? V- vaguely. Kunkel. The Kunkel Awards. Uh, there, which is a terrible name. Uh, they are like a GG formed and like supported, like basically journalism awards things. Like it recently got kind of big in in this circle because Jason Schreer bragged about getting three of them, right? And then had to like walk it back because everyone was like, "Hi, yeah, they're terrible." And he was like, "I was making a joke," and it's like, yeah. This organization helped like chase like ten people like that you know personally out of the industry. Yeah, I saw I saw that. Yeah, the blowback. I saw that. a lot of people getting mad at Jason Schreier, justifiably so. And like part of that is definitely like the the Kunkel Awards. Like, what's interesting about them is like if you actually read the awards, they're almost hilarious because they don't want to give anyone any credit. Like, they're like, well, this is garbage, but we didn't have anything better. And, like, I'm not joking. That's literally the tone of the awards. Like, so, like, even, like, number one or number two is, like, yeah, this has the worst lead of any gaming article I've read all year. I think that was number one. (laughs) It's like, what? But my favorite part was that they gave a student award to a guy I know who used to be my boss at Killscreen when I worked at the Meta. His name is William Parton. He's really great. He does really great profiles mostly, um, but he's also really great. I think he's also technically a professor, I think, or like a teacher instructor. They gave him a student award. Interesting choice. <laughs> For like his writing, they're like, he'll he'll grow into a better writer. And it's like, what? <laughs> he's so like I don't I don't take it personally because like they don't know how to do basic research. And so, like, they've got this, like, foundational rage, and it's so based on, like, this inept knowledge of how the industry works at large, but also how, like, just basic research. Because you could figure out really easily that he's not a student at UNC. Like, that's not hard. And he's been in this industry for a while. So, like, calling him a student is really funny. And also bad. Sorry, Will. (laughs) But you end up with all this stuff of, like, people, like, just getting mad. And that's that's Deep Freeze, and that's the Kunkel Awards, and that's all of that sort of GG adjacent stuff that, like, still exists for some reason. And it's just, to me, the fact that, you know, game developers and games journalists know each other and are colleagues and sometimes, you know, walk across the aisle, like... I don't see the big deal in that. Like if, if it's just like, Hey, if I know someone personally and I'm not going to cover them, like that's, that's you doing your, your due diligence. Like the fact that, you know, Kate Gray is, you know, working at um, a co-op now and doing narrative design or like Greg Kostavin left GameSpot to go do narrative stuff for super giant. Like it's a small fucking industry, man. There's a lot of crossover between, especially marketing and um, sort of writing like it's just there's a lot of crossover skills that work in both and you're gonna have people that cross that line um to like go across the border like i don't know anthony birch has done that before like even 
like just like and i'm over here and now i'm over there kate kara ellison who is probably one of sort of the most well-known female games journalists um uh, isn't a games journalist anymore like i think she works for somewhere in montreal maybe maybe idos or something like she works for like an actual like publication now or Leigh Alexander, who was that big, like, hated person during Gamergate, is now working in games. She did Reigns Her Majesty, uh, which I heard is pretty good. Uh, and I think she did some Netrunner stuff. But, like, there's, like, there's kind of this thin, sort of, uh, easy-to-cross barrier between these two. Like, it's very malleable. And I think that it's, again, this is, like, that general ignorance of how the industry works. Like, I'm not going to write a glowing review of uh, Sausage Sports Club because now I know Chris, and that's inappropriate. But I'm also not going to avoid talking about all games because I don't know every game developer, whoever it existed. Like, I'm not going to talk about the people who've, like, spent the night in my house, like, crashing as they go from it to another state or anything. But I'm not going to, like, just not talk about the industry. It's my industry too, man. Like, been here for a while. Not going anywhere. Probably not. I don't see a reason to. I like what I do. Like, um, I mostly transitioned to writing about games, writing not writing about games anymore because it's just easier. Like, the maddest someone got at me last year was over over a review of Mother that... uh, The Earthbound prequel? No, the movie. movie. Like, the The, really bad Jennifer Lawrence movie. Uh, and like, they basically called me out for like, not being well read enough. And it was so mild. I was like, man, when I was doing like, when I was doing like just basic, like, like games coverage in like 2013, 2014, like I was getting people who were like, you deserve to get sexually assaulted. And this dude's just like, I think you should read more. And I was like, this is honestly refreshing. (laughs) Please give me your, please give me your book recommendations. (laughs) you're a baby i've dealt with way worse <laughs> i've been i've been i've been in, i was born in the darkness I've been in the trenches my man you aren't gonna scare me off yeah i i hate how disgusting this industry or you know in the fandoms can be about that kind of stuff and it's completely unwarranted and, and unnecessary I, mean, I blame uh late 80s early 90s advertising for the most part um a lot of those sort of i think that it can be found there because again my one of my degrees is in uh, like media like arts and like stuff like that and one of the things we talked about is advertising as it shapes perceptions and that's really relevant with um with gamergate and everything that's kind of like related around it because um the late 80s and early 90s had a bunch of advertising that identified gaming as like an identity so, like, it isn't just that gaming's this thing you do, this activity you do. It's, like, who you are. And so a lot of people really took that to heart. They're like, oh, I'm a gamer. Like, being a gamer means that girls don't like me. Never mind that girls were gaming for as long as boys have. Or, you know, being a gamer means that girls don't like me and I have this cool thing that nobody likes me. And then you also have that sort of paired with stuff like Revenge of the Nerds and stuff that really enfocused this very toxic idea, idea of male nerd culture. And you take from that, and people go from that to, this is my identity, and you being here is a direct violation of that identity. 
and you cre- and that creates this conflict. It's not really understandable because uh, they're grown ass adults. They should know better. Like I don't agree with the idea we have a lot in covering uh, Gamergate where we like to refer to them as children because they're not. Like every person I've interacted with personally who's in GG or is in that sort of alt right sphere, they're not children. They're they're grown adult men. They know what they're doing. And when you say that they're a child, that leaves them both room to grow and an excuse to not have to validate their actions. And at the end of the day, like they're aware of what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They don't care. And even the ones who are like, oh, it's just ethics and games journalism. It's like, dude, if you can't do your fucking research, I'm not going to do it for you. I don't got time. I got 14 jobs. Like we said earlier, I'm doing everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's, I, I, I haven't heard it come from the perspective of advertising but that makes a lot of sense I think it's a big part of it because I think that's why people got so mad when people like I think the Lee Alexander article that people always bring up is the gamers is dead one like people are like no I am a gamer it's like well you're a lot of things but like at this point gamer as a term is really non-functional like every like I can get my grandmother (laughs) she'll play games all day if I let her like but that doesn't make her a gamer. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, the fact that I don't play Call of Duty doesn't make me a gamer? Like, okay. That's weird. Nobody plays Call of Duty. Everyone plays Call of Duty. Nobody plays Call of Duty because everyone's playing Call of Duty. It's like the number one selling game every year it comes out. Yeah, I remember that kind of stuff wrapped in, like, when the, the, the Penny Arcade stuff. Like, when Micro Hulik said some of that, that transphobic stuff, and then also, like, the the making light of of sexual assault victims oh the rape wolves dick wolves yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah i remember reading that uh yeah it was a polygon article it was like death of the penny arcade generation or and it was kind of like yeah no we need to we need to step away from this as kind of a culture you, you can't tie your entire identity to this yeah it's like what are you gonna do tie it to the media you consume we don't really have like a large bastion of people who are like, I only read sci-fi fiction. Like, that's your entire identity? Like, this one blip of media you, like, cover? That's not how that works. Yeah. So, um, hopefully, everyone remains aware of it. I, I, I constantly worry that, you know, people try to sweep it and be like, oh, it's fixed, it's, it's, it's done. We're good. Well, I mean, that's the standard, the whole, like, the, you know, the racism is dead because we had a black president. It's not dead. Like, GG isn't dead. It's just moved and relocated and allowed to fester. And I think you get a lot of that toxic stuff every now and then, like, even just, like, the response to Battlefield Five. Like, I think I saw, uh, I think her name's Megan Farukamesh. She used to write for Polygon, and now she writes for The Verge. And she posted a big long thing that some like this multi-page screed that someone had like DM'd her because she like said something about Battlefield Five, and they were like, "You don't understand games." And it's like she's been <laughs> like, "What?" It's like because I disagree with you, I don't get what I'm talking about. Like that's not how this works, and it's not. That's what I'm saying. It's not done. Yeah, I mean, uh, I believe she had like a really bad encounter with a naughty dog dev once that said something super vile yeah, to her. Probably. She's, she seems very nice. The one time I met her, 
and I see no problem, like, and but, like, you don't get, because I, I wrote that article because, um, when I first started writing it, I wrote it because, um, the one about, like, Gamergate in general, the first time I wrote about it, it was because, um, it was the first time writing it in 2014, and I first started writing it because I saw that all these people were kind of, like, trying to erase everything. Like, I would talk to people and be like, you guys started this over, like, a harassment campaign over one person and like, because of a review that doesn't exist. And they were like, no, we didn't. It was like, last week you were telling me you did. And that the review did exist. And that it was being hidden by Kotaku to, like, hide the truth. And it's like, and so you see this stuff and, like, this active, like, campaign to, like, distance itself away. And it's like, no, we're talking about, we're talking about, like, real actual problems. It's like, no, you're not. If you're talking about real problems, you'd be talking about, like, the consumer struggle against, um, like, Twitch streamers who don't disclose that that not only were that they were, like, paid to, like, do these things. Like, not just they were sent a free copy, but, like, actively paid. Like, that's not part of the Gamergate thing. Instead, it's, like, a review of a free game that doesn't exist is, like, the foundational struggle. And you can't escape that toxic origin. Like, you can't. Like, just start a new movement. Like, you can't escape it. Like, I remember having to wait, because the publisher I was with at the time didn't want to talk about it, so I could only talk about it if it became news. So, like, you'd have this, like, weird internal push-pull, because uh, we had that problem with, because um, I was like, I want to cover it, but then, like, I don't want something to be so bad that I, that I can cover it. Because, like, I think the first time I was able to cover it was... Um, Anita Sarkeesian was speaking at a university out west, and somebody called in a bomb threat. Right, and they had to stop. They had to cancel the the talk. Like they said they were going to pull a. Um, I forgot the name of the specific one, but there's a a, a really famous um, mass shooting in uh, Canada, like 25 years ago, maybe 30 now, about um, where a guy shot up a women's engineering department because women were stealing stealing his work. Like, he went into a room, he sectioned off the men from the women, and he shot all the women. And the guy who called the the, the Anita Sarkeesian event, he said, I'm going to, like, redo that. So it's, like, that that was, like, newsworthy enough for my publication to cover. It was, like, this guy threatening, like, extreme violence. And it was, like, people talk about Gamergate now, and it's, like, oh, they were just mad on the internet. It's, like, they weren't just mad on the internet. They brought it out of They're the internet. They life. Like real, there were real actual consequences to this, and pretending it's something else just doesn't help. Uh, yeah, I was talking to Christina Ness, uh, who's uh, she's a concept artist and she works at Valve now. But I was talking about just how, like, we were talking in general about kind of uh, uh, you know employee handbooks and stuff like that because we were talking about the Valve one that leaked out a couple years ago, and then I was talking about how you know even on the game dev side, like employers weren't willing to talk about it there were no all hands meetings to to talk about you know how this affected employees and their place of work all hands meetings about not talking about it like we can't oh this is us talking about it we can't talk about it and i think that that kind of culture of just like not acknowledging it ultimately did a disservice and allowed a lot of really negative stuff because this is like this is the hot button issue with a lot of games editors from that time is they don't like to admit fault. But, like, at the end of the day, like, that fault is there. Like, like uh, I remember the really conciliatory... I, I mean, I like, part of it wasn't bad, but there's a... 
piece from uh, the the guy who was running Kotaku at the time, who I think is still the guy running Kotaku, where he posted a like response because okay, the thing was is that the real sign that Gamergate was a hate movement is that they weren't mad at Nathan Grayson who wrote the article. They were mad at Zoe Quinn. Right. Nathan Grayson still has his job at Kotaku as he should. He seems really nice. I've met him before too. Seems great. Not saying he deserves harassment, but what I'm saying is, is that it's a sign of the sort of underbelly of this movement that the person they were mad at was the dev and not the journalist because the dev was a woman. So male journalist and the response from Kotaku was like, um, cool, we won't back any Kickstarters or Patreons anymore. And it was like, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not the point. Like, giving them those concessions, letting them whitewash it, letting them say that it's about ethics is the problem. And that was, I think, the most I saw from any major publication during that point was, like, basically, like, don't worry, we're not going to let in biases. And it's, like, it's not about biases. They're talking about bombing women. <laughs> Like, don't give in to their talking points because, like, because they they couch them in like potential problems. Like, if you want to like interiorly say like, let's maybe guys don't don't like back people on Kickstarter, but you're gonna write about that's fine. I mean, it's not really an investment, so I don't necessarily see the problem. I personally don't do it, but that's because I don't back Kickstarters anymore because that got dangerous to my pocketbook. Um, <laughs> but like. <laughs> That's like giving into them is like saying they're right, even if that's not what you're actively doing. And it's a problem. I agree. And I really enjoyed both of the, 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 the essays that you wrote on about it at Unwinnable. I think that I think they're really important. I know uh, Amanda Farrow, mm-hmm. I think I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. I think so. Uh, because she was harassed after uh, PAX East, yeah. um, which was incredibly terrible that was the most recent one right where she made a really good point about a dev like maybe shouldn't have teabagged her mm-hmm. in a game well what it wasn't even it wasn't even her it was mike footer um you know her significant other yeah and it, it just it it flew off the rails maybe don't teabag the writer who's like covering your, your yeah. game it's like no that that's that's accurate like don't do that like and even that dev probably knew they fucked up like as someone who's like shown at game like game conventions, like everyone I know has like tricks to like let the any player who's not on your team win, because otherwise you're a dick. Like you're playing them competitively, you're just like shitting on them for the hell of it. Like they don't know the game like you do. So like I, I think the dev even knew they fucked up. <laughs> but yeah, I think articles like the ones you write are important and obviously helped Amanda kind of deal with some of that stuff and, and relate. And I think that that stuff's incredibly important. Yeah. She's really nice. I met her at GDC. She seems really great. I hope she does really well. I didn't get a chance to say hi to her. She was in the press room a bunch, but Mike was literally on my Paxi's panel <laughs> and she walked into the room and I didn't like, didn't say Hey there. When it's panel time, like my, my brain is scrambled because I just, I'm a bundle of nerves. Um, but no, I think this was an awesome talk. Thank you. I'm glad to help talk or whatever. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I think you bring an awesome perspective working on both sides of things and, and also working, uh, you know, from Kentucky. I think it's important people know that there, there are places to make games. We outside exist. Of. Yeah. Um, but Amanda, mm-hmm. thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course. 
love to have you on anytime. Sure. Um, where can people find you? Uh, probably the best place is on Twitter. Um, it, I'm uh, at barely concealed. Um, I'm not spelling that. It's way too long. Uh, and then if you want to look more at the button project, it's at buttonsr.cool. And then uh, Unwinnable, which is mostly home to a bunch of very rad writers that are not me, which is unwinnable.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, if you like this podcast, you want to listen to any of our other podcasts, you can find them at word-games.com. Um, we're also on Twitter at Word Video Games or just search Wordcast on your podcast player of choice amanda thank you again thank you for having me of course until next time